Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my co-host, Luke Thompson. And this week, we are talking about a house party, specifically (laughs) party politics in the United States Congress, which usually um, inevitably leads to a conversation about the parties in the House of Representatives. So how are you doing this week, Luke? Jay, it's good to be back with you. Um, yeah. It's been too long. Been I'm too I'm long. excited to, to excited to dig in and and to talk Turkey about some you know relatively recent history, the mostly the last fifty years, I guess mm-hmm. we would say, mm-hmm. um, last half century, and and some stuff that I think people will see has has real bearing, uh, real and immediate bearing on the things they see in the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we had talked a little bit about uh, we've talked at various points about the parties in the House of Representatives. Uh, we had talked about them during our historical overview of Congress, which was at the beginning of this miniseries. And then a couple episodes ago, we had talked about the party theory of congressional organization, which yeah, that's, a, that's episode 73. If people episode 73. Just to briefly re- recapitulate that idea is the function of political parties in the House of Representatives and to a lesser degree in the United States Senate is to serve as a kind of cartel to limit the options that the limit the policy options that the house can choose from so you can imagine right now for instance with the house basically being split 50 50 maybe better put 51 49 between the democrats and the republicans you could imagine in theory republican policy initiatives could win a majority on the floor of the house of representatives if the members voted their preferences. But the way the House is organized along party lines is such that those policy alternatives are never considered on the floor. They're not within the range of policy alternatives. And I think probably we're going to dig into this a little bit here. Um, But I, I think probably one of the first things to appreciate about the nature of partisanship in the House of Representatives, and we'll talk a little bit this more about this in a couple of weeks when we talk about legislative procedure in the House. But there are a series of votes that the House typically takes before it passes a measure. There's a vote to accept the rule. There's the motion to recommit. Right? These are votes that are strictly along party lines. These are not policy-oriented votes. These are the votes of the party essentially asserting its dominance over the chamber. And these are the votes where you see even people who are going to vote against the final bill, they still vote for the rule. It is very, very rare that you see a political party lose one of those procedural questions because it's in the procedural matters where the party exercises its greatest influence over members, even members who are not going to vote with the party on the final bill. Yeah, that's that's right. So um, there there are a few. I guess to take to take a step back, um, many people you will hear sometimes folks who are trying to be like too clever by half, the fo- the folks who read the introduction to three books and are at a cocktail party trying to sound quite smart, will say something like, "Well, you know, if the United States had a parliamentary system, it's like the United States does have a parliamentary system. It's called the House of Representatives. Yeah, the the, the right. House." The House runs in ways that are fundamentally similar 
to the way the British Parliament is. Um, they are they are even fundamentally similar to the way um, you know the coalitional parliaments of um, of Europe run. The Senate is an aberration um, to have a a genuinely I'll use the magic word co-equal Senate to the, <laughs> to right. the House is um, is distinctive. I mean, there, there's some there's some American originalism for you um, or American exceptionalism for you. But, um, you know, the House is a tyranny of the majority. Um, it governs in the interest of the tyranny. It governs in the interest of uh, re-electing the people who are current members in the majority. And even more than that, it governs in the interest of the speaker retaining control over a majority of the people in the House. And so it is. it would require two things to have um, a, a speaker get dispossessed, which we've seen, right? We've seen defenestrations. Um, it requires the speaker to make a political mistake in reading the, um, the, the setting, right? Reading where his or her uh, party caucus is. And it requires um, a, an organized group of members willing to defect from the party line in conspicuous and dramatic ways. That first thing is, you know, to err as human, that happens. Um, the second is more complicated because in the American system, um, you will almost, you will very, very rarely at least see that sort of defection happen if the majority party also controls the presidency, because an ideological faction seeking to bring down a leader in the majority in the House may not have to fear the Senate, which is comparatively inert because power is so diffuse in the Senate, both between committees and seniority, et cetera, but does have to fear the president coming in and bigfooting them, right? Yes. Um, now, if the Speaker of the House gets sideways with the president, as we saw with Paul Ryan, that more or less invites opportunities. For, if, if the president is assertive, that invites opportunities for, for coup plotting on the part of ideological insurgents within the House. But by contrast, even Joe Biden, who I think you know, our Democratic listeners will probably be willing to admit is not um, the picture of energy and executive, uh, has been able to cow at various terms both the sort of high socioeconomic status, quote unquote, moderates in the House caucus who are holding out for assault deduction in, uh, inclusion in any major legislation and the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is much larger and represents very deep districts. You know, Both of those entities at different times have shown that they'll go along to get along because it's better to do that than have the president sort of declare you verboten and cast into outer darkness. And, and to give you a sense of what will happen when you get sideways with them, you know, um, the uh, the only two members of the House Democratic Caucus to sort of openly defy the Obama administration were Dan Lipinski and Henry Quaylar. And Lipinski uh, was booted by Maureen Newman, who herself may wind up going down to an ethics investigation because she essentially bribed a potential primary opponent with a job um, in Illinois' third district. Uh, and uh, Quaylar is now you know, had the FBI raid his home and office, which the FBI does not raid the home and office of a member of Congress without the speaker getting a heads up ahead of time. That is true. So, that's that's the um, debate clause, at least. Right. The, and the, so the um, shadow of it, at least. 
Right. So, so contrast that with the way that Katie Hill, under an ethics investigation, was allowed to sort of shuffle off the stage and resign, keep her repu- her political reputation at least intact, and um, you know has gone on to continue to be um, a sort of Democratic Party activist. That that was not an option given to Lipinski or to Quayle because they defied Obama and have since been you know, sort of defenestrated as individual members. We do not have what um, what Britain has, which is called the three-line whip vote. Uh, and so, so the Speaker of the House lacks two tools that are very important. We don't have a three-line whip, which is to say that you can send someone into the opposition benches if they don't, they don't vote with you. Um, the other thing that we don't have is um, we can't, we, in, in the United Kingdom and in other European parliaments, you don't have to, you don't, there's not a residency requirement. Um, so you don't have to live in the, in the constituency you represent, which means that people who are close to the prime minister get the plum constituencies, the ones that are close to London and heavily partisan in your favor. So you don't have to campaign very hard. You can focus on being a minister and, and other responsibilities. And people that get sideways with the, the uh, prime minister can be cast into deeply hostile territory. So imagine a world in which if you got sideways with a future speaker, Kevin McCarthy, he could move you from a safe district in Western Kansas to say, having to run against AOC in the Bronx, right? <laughs> right. So, so that's a primary disciplinary function that we don't have. We do have a ton of other disciplinary functions ranging from the, the you know, speakers or party leaders in the house control massive super PACs. They control the party committees functionally. They do a lot of recruitment. Most of the major well-funded interest groups that spend in, in primary campaigns take their lead from the from the leadership. You know, so for instance, Nancy Pelosi essentially blessed the, the primary challenges to Dan Lipinski, both the initial unsuccessful and the subsequently successful one. NARAL, Pro-Choice America, the super PAC for um, the, the NARAL, spent millions of dollars against him both times. Um, these were, you know, these were disciplining mechanisms of the party leadership being imposed on truculent members. Um, they're, they're not as clear, but they're usually sufficient to, to bring people in line, certainly so long as you don't ask people to take substantive final votes on legislation that will undercut their electoral prospects, which you as the leader of the House have incentives to let them defect on anyway. This is actually what Nancy Pelosi is best at, is allowing, doing the math sufficient to allow her members to defect when they need to for political reasons. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, so when we're thinking about the, the power of Nancy Pelosi as speaker, um, a lot of times, um, you know, in journalistic accounts, the talk about Pelosi's power as speaker will um, reference her political acumen, which which Luke mentioned right now, which is a legitimate uh, quality that she she is a very skilled manager of her caucus within the House of Representatives. She's, that, she's been in charge for twenty years, which is one of the is, longest tenures. Is ever. extraordinary. Yes, yeah. um, she is a very skilled manager of her caucus. Um, I would say, in a way. Probably the analog would be Mitch McConnell in the Senate being just to having a real intuitive sense of where her party is. But it, you, you cannot chalk the entirety of her power up to Machiavellian veer two. 
Um, There are structural reasons, right? And and we talked about these in our historical overview of Congress. And the way this functions in practice, this is sort of an episode where the rubber hits the road is we had talked in the night about the 1970s through the present day, we see this increasing um, ideological polarization between the two parties where the Republicans are farther away from the Democrats ideologically within the house. But then within the parties of the house, you have homogenization. So you see less and less divergence within member preferences. And so what this is enabled, because the House is, as Luke suggested, a majoritarian institution, um, and in ways that even stretch beyond the Senate, right? The Senate is a majoritarian institution to some extent, but you know, the Senate rules are continuous. They go from Congress to Congress. Every House of Representatives is, you know, enacts a new set of rules. Usually the rules are very similar, But the point, though, is that if a new House majority wants to completely rewrite its rules, it can do that. And it only takes 218 votes to do it. You need a majority on the floor to do that. In the Senate, to change the rules, you need a two-thirds majority, unless you're just going to blow them up like they did with judicial nominations. So what this means, then, is that as to think of this conceptually, as the majority party, you get closer and closer to 218 people within the House of Representatives agreeing on a policy agenda, um, then they are more and more able to work their will. And and to do that, the working of the will of the majority is done through the party leadership. And and particularly the the main point of party leadership, and there's multiple points we could talk about them, but the main person through which the will of the party is expressed today is the Speaker of the House. That is the aspect, that is the dominant quality of the Speaker of the House. Um, And then there's, you know, there's a leadership team that exists underneath the speaker, but ultimately the speaker is the leader, like the Nancy Pelosi is effectively like Boris Johnson in many respects, at least the American analog, as Luke indicated. Slightly different haircuts. Yeah, slightly different haircuts, not the same sweeping powers um, that Boris Johnson has. But as Luke illustrated, you know, talking about Dan Lipinski. You know, there are in the American political system, even when there are formal limits to the speaker's power, there are informal ways in which money can be moved and things can be done. Um, And so this is why to understand the House of Representatives today really requires an understanding of political parties, whereas, you know, 70 years ago, it would have been a different story you'd have more political powerhouse within the committee system and not coincidentally, the majority party in the 1950s, the Democratic Party was very diverse ideologically and there was great overlap on multiple issues with the Republican Party. So unsurprisingly then you see weaker parties than what you see now with Nancy Pelosi. But as the parties have become more distinctly ideological and more homogenous, the power of the party leadership has grown because it's through the leadership that the will of the majority is expressed. 
Yeah, let me let me give you an example of that recently. Um, so the the position of majority leader in the House, so the speaker is specified in the Constitution. Um, the other positions are not. Um, although the Constitution refers to leaders, it does not require that the Speaker of the House, anyone other than that the House shall have a speaker, right? Like it, it refers to a Speaker of the House in the Constitution. None, none of the other jobs are, are inscribed. Um, historically, because of ideological diversity within the parties, the Speaker of the House had a more explicitly managerial role for the entire House. Um, in part because whatever the speaker wanted to get done could also get done often with the votes of members of the minority party who might be more than happy to, um, you know, collaborate in some legislation that, uh, you know, facilitated their electoral interests, even though it, 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 even though it maybe didn't have enough support in the majority party to get across the finish line under its own steam, right? So you can think about any number of major issue fights from from the 19th and 20th centuries that that fit this bill for you know around currency around whatever right there are there are you know civil rights is passed by a common initially in fit in the 50s is passed by a combination of republicans with a, with with northern liberal support and then at other times you have conservatives in both parties that that stand up to legislation that you know all manner of different things sort of have cross party appeal as that has diminished Speakers of the House have come to look much more and more like extensions, as Jay was saying, of the majority, right? They're no longer attempting to generate legislation through a, a majority of the, of the House, right, of the whole House, but rather simply through the majority that puts them into power, right? And what that change has done, I, what's interesting is this is, has historically been, I, I would say, and not to editorialize too much about the news, but this has historically been one of Pelosi's blind spots is she has generally not had a sense of where the Republican caucus is at all. So while she's been very masterful at um, knowing how to cut and slice and dice her own party caucus, she has really not, she's been surprised at different points in time about underlying diversity, policy priorities, and other things of the Republican caucus in the House. Um, that, you know, that was coming to bear on the infrastructure bill when the, the skilled trades unions sort of bailed her out by finding her the votes she needed to let her progressive members off the hook to vote for um, the infrastructure bill as a separate piece of legislation. But, you know, in many ways, I think speakers of the House moving forward are going to look more, not less, like Nancy Pelosi, right? If you go back to, you know, speakers in the 1990s, 1980s, et cetera, you know, everybody talks about the famed Tip O'Neill uh, tenure as speaker. Those were, those speakers always had a pretty good sense of where, say, 20% of the other party's caucus was and where they could be reached. Um, I would say that, you know, one of the great strengths of Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader is he looks beyond just the Republicans in the Senate and has a pretty good sense for where some of the Democrats are and where he can, you know, he can make a deal and 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 make things work. Um, you know, we we will see what a McCarthy speakership looks like. Um, obviously, since I expect Republicans to win the the House back in the November elections, and I expect that he will be able to be elected Speaker. I think he'll look a bit more like Pelosi. I, I think he'll be very focused on his own party and his own caucus and not on the House as a whole. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. Boehner is an interesting case study of somebody who um, 
has an ideologically homogenous i mean relative to history but is out of step with his own party and ends up being as you put it defenestrated right like yeah i i do think i mean just to again to editorialize i think boehner would have survived that if he wanted to i do think he was burned out but um he was tired of having to do it over and over and over again mm-hmm. um but well, yeah and, and, and that's that's a thing is that he had to over and over and over again during the obama years stave off um you know insurgencies from within his party that wanted him to push harder against the obama administration in the form of signaling bills showing sort of sometimes radical or irresponsible positions that drew a contrast with the you know with the democratic administration um and you know i think boehner was torn between what he felt were the obligations of good government and um the necessities of of or political expedience and I don't believe that Pelosi has ever felt thusly constrained. She sort of thinks that the the requirements of good government will work themselves out in the legislative process. Um, they're not really her responsibility to carry it on. Yeah. Um, and frankly, you know, I, I don't know what McCarthy will do, but I, I think he'll be I think he'll be much more like a Republican Pelosi. He'll be very focused on his own party. Well, I think Boehner was also disadvantaged by this uh, paradoxically by the size of the Republican wave in 2010, because Mm. it just brought in so many people who did not have practical experience in politics and their expectations for what was practically attainable um, were unrealistic. And I think compounding that, frankly, you had people like Ted Cruz in the Senate actively encouraging, you know, the Fox News crowd to hold um, unreasonable expectations so that he to facilitate his presidential campaign Boehner inherited a party that was really in the midst of a transition that that he wasn't necessarily that wasn't his bag I think as a leader that wasn't where his skill sets were um but yeah so when we think about when we think about the speaker of the house I think that when we think about okay well how you know how does the speaker exercise power okay so she she is a spokesman for the will of the majority. So how does that play out in practice? I would say there's there's several ways in which the speaker ends up being um, the dominant entity within the House. Lou pointed to one of them, which is the prestige of the speaker outside of the House enables political pressure to be put on members external to the House itself. But let's think about the House within the chamber itself. What does the speaker have? One of the powers that the speaker has um, is a great deal of influence on who sits on which committees. Now, all of the, a lot of this, and it's important to bear in mind that the speaker, this is not like a Joe Cannon type of thing where Pelosi is a dictator. That Pelosi's power is due to the fact that the, that the House majority is generally in agreement. So. A lot of these things are done in consultation with other party, either leaders within the party or committee leaders, but the reality is is that they're all on the same page, generally speaking, so that facilitates the Pelosi's ability to make choices. So I, I would say there's a couple points, right? At the beginning of the process, determining uh, who sits where in committees, and again, 
that's done with the consultation of the committee chairs and is ultimately has to be approved by the by the Republican conference for the Republicans and the Democratic caucus for the Democrats. That would be one. Um, she also has the authority to refer bills that are submitted to her that's, and also can make multiple referrals. That's another important power. Um, and then the House Rules Committee, which we talked a little bit about when we talked about c- committees. Um, and we're gonna talk more in a couple of weeks when we talk about legislative procedure. But the House Rules Committee basically determines how bills are debated on the floor, how long they're debated, what will be debated, what is the House going to talk about, uh, when is it going to talk about it, how long is it going to talk for, what amendments will be considered, what the order of the amendments will be, basically everything that the House votes on um, is determined by the Rules Committee. Now, again, the floor can always overrule the Rules Committee. The floor has total sovereignty. At the end of the day, 218 members on the floor want something to happen, that something's going to happen. But when you have an ideologically homogenous majority, um, the House Rules Committee acts as its spokesperson. And the House Rules Committee works very in very close conjunction with the Speaker. And so the Speaker, working through the House Rules Committee, is able to structure the nature of the debate on the floor of the House of Representatives and the power to set the agenda ends up is assuredly the most important power that the speaker has. And it's because as, as Luke illustrated, you know, Luke made the point that Pelosi strategically frees members to, to take votes um, uh, that go against what the party's uh, collective will is because it's a tough vote for them to, to defend back home. But the expectation though, is that when the rule comes to the floor, that that member will vote for the rule because the rule is where the party's power in its most direct form is ultimately expressed. So those are really the three main powers within the house uh, rules that the speaker possesses. And then again, on top of that, there's the informal powers and, you know, I mean, the speaker holds a press conference, journalists show up as opposed to just some random backbench member whose name is not Ocasio-Cortez. They can hold all the press conferences they want. They're not going to get any journalists to show up. The speaker, when the speaker talks, people listen. The media listens, political elites listen, donors listen. That ends up being an enormous source of power as well. Absolutely. And I mean, that soft power is it's difficult to understate how important that soft power is because it, it, you know, there are, I guess that there's a, there's a value in talking a little bit about or refreshing some of the political psychology we talked about two episodes ago. Well, but, Luke, before you do yeah. that, let me just, I, I'm, I can tee this off to you because I feel like as somebody who has an, a very high level academic education in politics, but then your professional life has been in the practice of politics. I I feel that modern day political science um, struggles to understand that informal ways in which Mm. power is is exercised. I mean, I think for a variety of reasons, because I mean, I think one reason is, is that so few political scientists actually do what Richard Fenno did, which is just go out there and just basically do the, sh- the old school shoe leather stuff. 
Um, and then I think another thing too is I think the Republican coalition is a complete mystery to academics because they're all <laughs> overwhelmingly left wing and, and their, their moral revulsion at the, at the Republican coalition prevents them from understanding it on its own terms. But as somebody with a, an, this, a, this academic background, I'm curious to see if you agree with me on this assertion, but then also maybe like your own, I don't want you to like, you, I'm not looking for like secrets or gossip, but like, can you maybe give our listeners a sense of this kind of how these informal networks of power are operating through and within the House leadership? I would be really interested to hear. Sure. Because um, I don't well, know, you know, I don't, yeah. I, I have the academic background and, and when I'm speaking historically, as a researcher, you know, you read James Madison's letters, for instance, and I, I have, I can speak at length about the informal networks of power back then because I have the evidence, but I, I have, you know, I, you only get these glimpses of things through the press and you know, something's going on in the background, mm -hmm. but I, I only have, it's like through a glass darkly for me. Cause I don't know what the press why the press is reporting what it's reporting, why it's leaving things out, who's talking to it. So like how these informal networks go, even for somebody like me, who's a professional commentator on politics, it remains very, very vague to me. Yeah, it's, um, well, let's see, let's start with the minority um, because it, it's easy to sort of dispense with the minority. I think I mentioned a few episodes ago that a, a minority staffer described the, uh, to being in the minority in the House of Representatives in the House of Representatives as being in a being in a think tank that holds roll call votes. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of truth to that, which is a bit glib, but it also it sort of brings to the surface something which is important, which is while you're in the minority, your job is to distinguish yourself from the majority um, for purposes of becoming the majority. It's also an opportunity to dry run a lot of ideas that so that you have material to put into effect when you become the majority. This is a relatively new dimension to the House because Democrats held it for 41 years. There was, for many, many, many of those years, very little realistic prospect that the Republicans were going to become the majority. The Democratic caucus was internally sufficiently diffuse that if you just had an idea, you could probably implement it through a committee-based legislative process. Now, you know, the minority is really it's, – it's starting to look more like the way you know, think tanks and corporations house – the Republican presidential administration in exile, when Democrats have the White House and you know foundations and universities house the Democratic presidential administration in exile while Republicans have the White House. You know, the House minority is starting to do the work of legislative preparation and agenda building for when the party gets the gets control back, right? I mean, let's let's be clear. Pelosi will have been the leader of the Democratic Party for 20 years, of which only eight she will have been in the majority. The other 12, they will have been in the minority. Um, and Republicans will have been in charge when she became leader after four years, taking charge again, losing it, and then taking it back. And at that point, she'll retire. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there's a bit of, of change going on under the surface. But that, that's sort of what the minority does. The minority does not, you know, minority parties can be very fractious places, but there are massive external incentives to keep that stuff in the house, right? To keep it under wraps because, you know, you don't want to be accused of undermining the party's ability to win the majority, right? So even it's a lot like a duck with a lot of furious paddling going on underneath right. the surface. Or but it looks like, very like so for instance, like this is, you know, Liz Cheney's 
problem, right? This I is mean, yes, this is why she got booed. I mean, it's it, it, not that a lot of members would, if they could have, if they had voted their conscience purely on regarding January sixth. Um, there were people probably, who voted for the second impeachment who voted to remove Liz Cheney as conference chair. Right, because because, because she's she not is, doing her job. Her job is, is to yeah. Yes, she Sorry. was impeding the acquisition of the majority is what she right. was doing because she was being, as you said, fractious, but above the surface. Yes. Right. Yes. The, the, the whole point. So you would be shocked at how candid conversations between members are. Um, they, they are, they really level with one another. Yeah. Um, they're very affable. Generally people are friendly. Everybody sort of feels like they're in it together. Even in opposite parties, people are friendly, but they're very direct. Um, I, I've always been sort of struck by that. There's there's a real sense of when we're talking to one another, we're honest um, because it's not a big place. There are only 435 members. And if you get a reputation for being dishonest, that can poison you within your own party and the other party, with the other party, that can even poison you in your own party, right? So people talk very, speak very bluntly to one another, um, which is kind of, kind of great when you see it. Um, that's not to say that they don't politic. It's not to say that they don't play games. It's not to say that they don't have ambitions, but you know, oftentimes the dynamics that are going on behind the the, the surface are are, are people are aware of what the stakes are, and if you want to know where somebody stands, you can just ask them, and they'll generally tell you. And if they don't tell you, that also itself tells you where they stand, right? <laughs> um, the so the minority party has lots of powerful external pressure incentives to keep them on the same team and on the same page that there are people who say look you know we are we don't like what this administration is doing or we don't like what the majority is doing here's what we would be doing if we were here that's why you need to vote not only to reelect us but to pick up two or three or four or whatever additional marginal seats um, in swing districts so that we can be in charge and not these yahoos right and and typically they will point to the white house but you know i'll tell you I, having made a lot of ads to this effect uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi as a party leader in the House of Representatives uniquely uh, helps to motivate voters, uh, Republican-based voters to turn out, and also is very persuasive as a as a persuader among swing voters um, to vote for Republican House members yeah, because she is so high hope profile. Her net favorability right now in the real clear politics average right now is negative twenty three. With, uh, I mean, his, I imagine McConnell's is worse, but his is always worse with his own party. Yeah, has McConnell's a lot to do with, always yeah. weaker with his own party. But yeah. Pelosi, uh, that has a lot to do with the nature of of the Senate Majority Leader and how weak that power that position is. It's very disempowered. Yeah, very and disempowered. unlike 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 McConnell, they like they run campaigns against Pelosi, and they have for a, over a decade. They yeah. run campaigns against her because it's it yeah, and it's voters in a way that. McConnell doesn't drive voters. Uh, McConnell drives donors. He drives. Okay. He drives a yeah. Uh, Democrats do campaign with McConnell quite against McConnell quite a bit. Oh, um, with the donor I, class. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, okay. I mean, especially small dollar donors. I mean, just oh, look at how much right. money they set on fire running against Carolina. him twice. Right. No, it, well, yeah, and so. Oh, Carolina yeah, running against him. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, continue. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the minority is sort of held together by external pressure, right? Um, it's it's like a it's like a, a submarine um, underwater, right? It just the 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 brackets are are sealed up even more because the 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 external pressure is sort of pushing in on them. Um, the majority is a is a a different thing because on the one hand you have 
fewer external pressures. I mentioned the presidency, right? And I mentioned some of the, the coercive mechanisms, but um, the enemy of every legislative majority is not the minority party. People will often think that it's the minority party, but the actual enemy is the clock. Um, the passage of time is, is what really kills a majority because what happens is the person who manages the agenda and manages the floor, i.e. the speaker, manages the clock because invariably you will not have enough time to do all of the things that you want to do. Um, and thus you have to choose who wins and who loses and when that person wins and when that person loses, right? Um, in large majorities, this is relatively easy because you can either toggle between different clear factions and everybody gets their piece, or you just pick one faction and screw them because they're dispen they're expendable, right? So, you know, in a in a state with a, where one party has a super majority in a chamber, usually the lower chamber of the legislature, uh, you, like you may have, for instance, labor Republicans or um, you know pro I, I guess socially conservative or blue dog Democrats. Like in California, they just get screwed all the time because they're un, they're superfluous, right? The 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 majority of the majority is sufficiently ideologically coherent without them that their priorities just never never come up. Um, Nonetheless, uh, you know, if if you're in charge of a majority and you lose that majority, right? I mean, one one of the things that's remarkable about Pelosi's tenure in office is that she got shellacked in 2010 and held on for another 12 years, right? Um, that's an incredible achievement. Uh, typically, what will happen is a new leader comes in in the minority, right? Establishes himself or herself as leader. Spends two to four years, you know, building a, you know, an, a case for the majority against the other party, um, and then, you know, when you come into power, flush with victory, everyone's really happy. They think you're great because you've just given them the thing that they want, which is actual power, and that you sort of you, you begin to spend down that goodwill immediately because you have to pick who wins and who loses, right? So you have to know who your base is within your own majority and then who you can increasingly sacrifice. Now, if you look at Nancy Pelosi, she has been very ruthlessly affected at this in a way that none of her Republican counterparts, even John Boehner. So were. who would you say Pelosi's base is within the, the Congressional Black Caucus? The Congressional okay. Black Caucus. This is like, it's not, it's, it's, it, that, that takes no time at all to, to say. So do you think it's, it's, is it the CBC plus the California delegation? Is that? Yes. So, so California's big, although the California de delegation is a weird creature. So I, I, you know, yes, I would say, um, I think, uh, the CBC, the California delegation, to some extent, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, although that relationship has historically been fraught. Mm -hmm. But you'll notice also that the, that the CBC is split roughly in half. Half of them are, are, are also Progressive Caucus members, and half of them aren't. Okay. And so it's, there's a bit of observationally equivalent stuff going on there. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's always been Pelosi's base in the, in the House Caucus. Um, yes, affluent liberals are also a big part of her coalition, but they're also the people who give her the most trouble, right? right. Um, when push comes to shove, they won't defect uh, in the way that, say, the labor Democrats have or like the old school, more populist Midwestern Democrats did. Um, bec and because when push comes to shove, like she will, she'll murk Charlie Rank, or um, what's his name, uh, from Michigan, uh, deceased, his wife now has a John seat. Dingle. Dingle. She'll murk John Dingle. Right. Um, and, and put, you know, Henry Waxman in for him, 
um, and everybody will go along with that, right? right? So, so I mean, she ultimately, when Pelosi became House leader, I think Jim Trafficum was still in the House, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, rest in peace, killed by his own tractor in an accident. Um, only, only would have happened to that guy. I'm, you know, truly one of the more interesting political one figures. One of God's in original prototypes. That's right. That's right. Yeah. One of God's, yeah. Too, too rare to live, too weird to die. Right. <laughs> um, the doc, the Dr. Gonzo of the house of representatives. Yeah, I'm um, kidding. but like, you know, there are no Jim traffickings left. Right. Right. You know, uh, Dan Lipinski to bring him up again, when Nancy Pelosi became democratic leader in January of 2003, you know, Dan Lipinski was not the most conservative member of the democratic caucus, right? His deep you know, what, a former college professor. His dad had held the seat for 20 years. He represents the area around Midway Airport, you know, lots of ethnic poles, that sort of population. Strong union Democrat, loves to spend money on transportation and infrastructure and all that, right? Um, by the time Lipinski gets booted two years ago, I mean, the guy is like well to the right of the Democratic caucus. So yes. he, even though Pelosi's heartburn is caused on a day-to-day basis by progressives often from affluent inner ring suburban heavily white areas right you know you're um she is not th- those people will ultimately get in line right right and and it's the, the people she's been willing to sacrifice and this is like this takes some very real ruthlessness but there's a, an underlying cleverness to it pelosi kilt murders her moderates she murders her swing seat members all the time um she makes them walk the plank for stuff she shouldn't um she uh and she does it under a very simple political logic. One, these people are novices in politics, so they don't really know where their interests lie, and they're easier to manipulate. They don't, they know, also, that they're, they don't know they're being made to walk the plank. They don't know they're walking the plank. They think right. they're in a parade. Right. Um, they also don't have, in most cases, independent power bases to say no, even if they want to. Right. right? A lot of them are freshmen or junior members. Yeah. They're junior members because they come from moderate districts, so the chances Which, are – that which swap members every four to six years all the time right all the time exactly. yeah so they so they don't have they haven't been around the block enough to know right. so what john boehner did john boehner's theory was always look we have got to control we have got to do everything we can to protect our moderates because they're our majority makers mm-hmm. you know the guys like carlos Corbello, great guy you know big fan of carlos's i thought he was a great member of congress i i you know i i, I think the I think it's a, you know, quality person. Some of them manage to, you know, defy the laws of gravity every once in a while, right? John Katko's retiring. That's too bad. But, you know, he defied gravity for a long time. Fitzgerald outside of Philadelphia. I mean, that guy is, that guy is remarkable. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Brian Fitzgerald has, has genuinely defied gravity for three cycles in a row and will do it again this cycle. Um, But Boehner was really concerned with protecting those people because he rightly said, we may come down to a situation where three or four of those folks getting protected is the difference between being in the majority or not. Pelosi's argument, or, or thinking, at least as I understand it, both from talking to people and from observing the way she acts, is the tide's going to come in and it's going to cull, and you can't ever really predict where it's going to cull. What's more important is to stay in charge than to stay, you know, to make to to, to compete for the marginal seat. And the way that you stay in charge is you get things done, and the way you get things done is you legislate, and the way you le- legislate is you murder your moderates because you make them vote for a, for a platform that's out of step 
with the rest of their with their um, districts with their districts and you've seen people try to resist this oftentimes people who don't actually have to worry exactly about electoral consequences but are trying to stage sort of insurgent campaigns into the house leadership seth moulton from massachusetts josh gottheimer from bergen county new jersey these people have tried to tim ryan would he be another one too uh I, full disclosure i'm i'm working for um, oh, you know, all right. I won't ask. I can't. I can't talk about Ohio. Okay. No, Ohio yeah. politics is verboten. Yeah. No Ohio Understood. politics. Oh, good. Um, Got it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So basically, um, you know, Pelosi is willing. Is, Pelosi focuses more on her control of her caucus than necessarily keeping the caucus in the majority, and that's where Boehner found himself sideways with what you know the freedom caucus well not all of the freedom caucus but about half of two or two-thirds of the freedom caucus is because they kept getting they felt like they weren't doing anything to make their base happy because they were constantly trying to cater to and coddle these these sort moderate. of moderate members um and so you know pelosi is a is a like high stakes poker player with her majority look at what happened in in 2020 right i mean she made all of those moderates vote for impeachment, the first one, not the second one, because the second one happens after the election, right? They paid for it. They absolutely paid for it. I mean, that was a huge reason. They, they did not, they focused more on a procedural concern that was intensely politically polarizing, um, and they paid dearly for it. You know, now, now, she, I think, misread that situation, right? She said, okay, you know, like, we're not going to pay for this, and this is going to be massively on. Un- you know, he's he's massively unpopular. This will actually be a winner for these suburban districts that are turning blue. They overestimated how quickly they were turning blue. But she was also pushed into it because after the Ukraine phone call was leaked by Adam Schiff, all the members of the Congressional Black Caucus, who, by the way, are the only people getting primaried out now mm-hmm. by progressives, largely backed by, you know, new urban transplants who are who are progressive affluent whites, just for the record. Right. Those are the AOC voters and Ilhan Omar voters. Leave that aside. Um, you know, the, the Congressional Black Caucus told her, like, she flipped within the span of 24 hours on the question of impeachment because they said, look, if we don't impeach the guy the first time on, on the Ukraine phone call, like, we're all going to get primaried out. It's like, we need you to do this. And because the CBC, which is a, you know, sort of liberal center of the Democratic Caucus block of voters with a broad range of geographic, you know, locations, said, like, we got to move on this. She moved on it. And she walked all those moderates off the Every single one of them. Mm, interesting. And she said to them, "Look at all. How, look at how angry the base is." You know, she talked. I'm sure she talked to them about how important it was to do right by the Constitution and chest thumping this and chest thumping that, under the logic that half of them were dead anyway, maybe more. <laughs> and so, better to stay in control. Wow, that's remarkable. Thank you for sharing. That's really interesting. Um, Sorry, if that's a little cold, I. No, <laughs> I mean, I think that's. I mean, it's interesting. For a number of reasons, and I, it, like I said, it speaks to, you know, it. I think that one of the things that it it points to is, you know, because we can. Go, I mean, maybe let me just do this like real quick, so you can appreciate like the the kind of academic understanding of the parties, right? So you have the speaker, and then you have the majority leader who helps the speaker. Then you have the whip system, and then you have the policy committees. And then you have the campaign committees um, and the Democrats also have uh, they both have um, the, it's called the Republican steering committee that basically is in charge of um, 
determining membership on committees. So that that's the party structure, right? So the majority leader helps the speaker um, the, and is usually the, the next in line. The whip team keeps an eye on what the party is thinking and then sort of counts votes. That right now is Jim Clyburn on the Democratic side and Steve Scalise on the Republican side. Policy committees um, devise and discuss policies, the steering committees uh, select committee members and then the campaign committees um, recruit, raise funds and coordinate party message. So that's what, the, what it looks like. But I think what your suggestion here as well though, Luke, isn't it? And the implication here and maybe I'm just reading into this, my own anxieties about modern politics um, is that increasingly there is a kind of anxiety. I think on, wouldn't you say on both sides? Um, well, I would say on both sides. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, it seems to me that the small dollar donors on the Democratic side are exercising enormous influence on Pelosi's decision making, and and I think also with oh, interesting. So I disagree with that. I, okay, I, go, I think, please go sorry. ahead. Sorry, sorry. No, no, so no, the small dollar ahead. donors are the small dollar donors matter a lot in the Senate. Okay. Um, because Senate seats are so high profile, and a marginal flip of one of them is 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 like again, like if we flipped one Senate seat, it would be the difference between who controlled the chamber and not. Right. Right. I mean, there are only a hundred Senate seats. There are only you know, 33 of them up at any given time. Um, you know, those are those are sort of marginally massively important. Um, but I, you know, the House seats are less so. The small dollar donors are a big deal. They really are. But um, uh, it, it's, I, I well, see the- let me, uh, let me rephrase yeah. my question. So like, because you, you had mentioned the upscale white, like in, with respect to the C, CBC. Yeah, talking about upscale whites moving into these districts, they also sort of have yeah, the gentrification voters, is what right? Call them. Yeah. Which also just strikes me, at least on the Democratic side, is having a very like, if we were to do a Venn diagram between them and the small dollar donors, there'd be a lot of overlap. It, absolutely, um, okay. you know, I, a lot of the small dollar donors are so. One one caveat is a lot of those people are a little younger. Mm -hmm. um, small dollar donors are a little older, a little more suburban. Okay. But yeah. Okay. Um, so to what extent then is so, – So what – well, here's, here's what's important, go, please, and this, is, this is the unique challenge that the CBC faces, right, is um, – or any really urban Democrat faces, is that they are accustomed to just appallingly low turnout. Right. And so the barrier to entry or the barrier to defeating or at least putting in serious peril a Democratic incumbent in a – in a heavily urban area is really not that much. I mean, I know we've said it on the podcast before, but it bears repeating that that when when Ocasio-Cortez beat old man Crowley, like she got 16,000 votes and and you know, that was 133% of the total he got. The old man the, the guy was the chair of a county party in a borough of New York City and he could only turn out 12,000 votes on his right. behalf. I mean, just right. just an appallingly low number. Yeah. And so part of what scares, you know, this is what this is what Lacey Clay was had Lacey Clay running scared. He was successfully primed is, you know, they, they cannot count on high numbers of, of votes. There are parts in blue state America where Republican primaries also are really low turnout because there just aren't that many Republicans. But even the even like a catastrophically low Republican primary turnout is almost always 30,000 votes, mm -hmm. which is more than 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 
uh, that that race and what was that 2018 so um so the 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 low turnout imperils urban members of the Congressional Black Caucus in a way that no one else is imperiled. And of course, Crowley was not a member of the CBC, but he was a you know a white Irish guy who lived in D.C. full time, representing a majority minority district. Well, and I just quickly add, you know, because I live outside of Pittsburgh, Bill right. Peduto, who was the mayor of Pittsburgh, was primaried out right, right by somebody to far to his left. Right. Um, Peduto, I mean, actually looks like if you took Joseph Crowley, slapped a big old beard on him, you'd be like, they look exactly the same. Yeah, yeah that's, right, um, that's right. Crowley's and, a little taller, I think. Yeah. But yeah. And and also the mayor of Buffalo was primaried uh-huh. out and came back on uh, on a, a writing campaign. So this yeah. is I, I, this is an extraordinary phenomenon going on within the Democratic Party, isn't it? Yeah. Well, so re, you know, Republicans faced. A during the during the Obama years, Republicans faced a series of atavistic primary challenges, or even not primary challenges, but just primary elections in which they pull, they selected unacceptable candidates. Right, like so, you have Richard Murdoch in Indiana, you have um, what's her name who beat Mike Castle in in Delaware, and uh, Sharon Angle. Uh, well, Sharon Angle in Nevada. I you know Sharon I I Sharon Angle had many flaws as a candidate. But she I, was I not do, like Christine. What's her name? In she Delaware. was not Christine O'Donnell or Richard Murdoch or that Missouri guy. She yes. was. Yeah. Yeah. And and in a more. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Todd Aiken. That's right. Yeah. In a more conservative state, she would have won. The problem is, is that she was in a purple state and running well, against Harry. There Reed were too. there were I have some I, I didn't work on that campaign, but I know the people who ran it. And I, I have some inside knowledge that there were, there were some problems there that probably. Were a bit more contingent. Um, I think we're probably telling a slightly different story um, if there were based on some contingencies. But, you know, it's it's easy to fold angle into the sort of um, that whole rash of people who were unelectable statewide who ran the Senate and won primaries or or deposed incumbents. And um, the same thing is not happening in, in Democratic Senate races. Right. Democratic Senate races continue to be extraordinarily establishment run affairs. I mean, to the extent that like they're even losing seats because of it, because, you know, Chuck Schumer taps Cal Cunningham, who winds up being a, a you know, serial philanderer <laughs> and they lose, they lose North Carolina. And that's why they have a 50-50 Senate now. I mean, like, I like, I like Tom Tillis. I've met him several times. I think he's a, a good guy and a good legislator, but he's not, he's always and he outperformed Trump in 2020, which was impressive because he had historically been, you know, I helped, I was working at the National Republican Senatorial Committee in 2014 when he got elected for the first time. He'd been the Speaker of the House in, in North Carolina beforehand. So full disclosure, those are my, you know, conflicts or history, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, Tillis was, is not a, um, he is not a barn burner and he's not somebody who's going to, he's not going to stretch out um, and win uh, by a big lead. He's a polarizing figure. He was a polarizing figure statewide because he was well-known as the speaker that, or the, the house leader beforehand. Um, that's, a, that's a tough state too. It's a North Carolina is a really tough, state, really, really tough, tough state, super insanely yeah. diverse state. Yeah. So many ways just that's a tough. State. Yeah. It's, it's as polarized as Wisconsin, but with a lot more moving parts. Yeah. Well yeah. put. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think, um, you know, I think that that what's interesting is the Democratic primary threat today exists at the House level, and it exists in urban districts with very, very low turnout. Like, I live in Baltimore now. I think probably many of our listeners know that. Um, I had lived on the Upper West Side before, so I've moved from um, 
uh, from Jerry Nadler's district to uh, Sarbanes, the Sarbanes district, the, the, the Sarbanes junior district. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's an interesting study in contrast because the Nadler district was essentially drawn to give him all of the not terribly orthodox Jewish parts of South Brooklyn all the way up to the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It's like an L shape that crosses um, the East River <laughs> and like skirts around Staten Island. That's amazing. It's absurd. Um, I mean, it's a it's a hilarious gerrymander. The Sarbanes district is even more of a hilarious gerrymander because it like includes, I think, the Eastern Shore and it literally carves out the majority white neighborhoods of Baltimore. Like it, it's it's gross. I mean, if you know Baltimore geography and you look at the Sarbanes district versus the Mfume district, like which is literally three blocks from where I'm sitting right now, it's real. It's real gross. Like it's. Um, it's it's it is a more ludicrous racial gerrymander than anything that any Republican legislature has ever concocted ever. <laughs> um, but the uh, the thing is, is both of those gerrymanders were drawn to insulate uh, ethnic white liberals from progressive challengers. Specifically, in the case of Sarbanes, a progressive black challenger. Like for instance, Brandon Scott, who is the very progressive mayor of Baltimore right now, who. Def didn't defeat. I mean, she didn't run for election because she'd done such a terrible job, his predecessor. Um, but, you know, he won in sort of an insurgent campaign as a progressive. He could very seriously, I don't know which side of the, the line he lives on. I mean, you, if you walk 10 blocks from my house, you will cross four congressional district boundaries in three districts. Hmm. It's crazy. Um, but like he could run against a guy like Sarbanes if Sarbanes had a remotely compact district and beat him. Right. I mean, the, the Maryland, the Maryland delegation is too democratic, too moderate and too white to represent the state. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Right. And the state legislature is essentially drawn it that way. Um, as a result, Sarbanes doesn't have the same fear that a guy like Kwesi Mfume would have where Mfume's turnout is going to be really low. Now, he'll still have some he has some outer reach parts and he has parts of the county and other things. So it's not just. Baltimore proper. Now, Baltimore proper is only a little more than a half a million people now. So it's, you know, and a, the average congressional district is 800,000. So it's, you know, you got to do more than that. But, um, but it's, it, it is, it is an interesting dynamic at work in which, you know, the old guard congressional black caucus who governed through the committee system and seniority and the accrual of seniority. And because historically they didn't worry about general elections, they were able to take votes that they would call orthogonal to the interests of their district in order to raise money from corporate interests, right? right? Banks, things like that, because their districts don't have a lot of economic activity in them that's resident, right? Like there are plenty of people who come in and work there and leave, but those districts, they don't have a ton of, of, of resident industry. And so understandably, your you know, Congressional Black Caucus members have historically said, yes, we raise money from corporate PACs. You know, that's what we need to have a political organization. And that political organization does more than just get us reelected in our in our district. It, you know, it helps people get access to federal benefits and, and all of these other things, right? Like I um, you know, that that model, now that you've had an influx of gentrifying sort of white progressives showing up in, in cities and looking at this and saying, Well, you're taking money from banks, you're a corporate shill, I'm voting against you. 
right? And they may not have deep ties to the particular neighborhoods they're moving in. They're just chasing Whole Foods as they crop up, right? <laughs> right. Um, like Whole Foods is the terraforming of white gentrification in the inner cities. Um, yeah. That's the more politically correct version of that joke than I, than I could tell, but we'll leave that as it is. Um, you know, these these folks, they don't feel real ties to the district. They, they don't they don't depend on bringing home federal bacon. They probably aren't calling the district office to get help with federal benefits, right? right. And so they can vote their ideology rather than their um, than their pocketbooks. And to vote their ideology, you only need two, three thousand of them, and all of a sudden you have a real problem if you're in Congress. Yeah, a real problem. Yeah, that's fascinating. and and that's and, and that's that to me is the most interesting dynamic. And this is this will be my final. Thing. I really admire the Congressional Black Caucus as as an organization. I, I do think too. It, I have a lot of. I think that. Don't you think? Would you agree that in the expression of black political power in since the civil rights movement has been in through the Democratic primaries for president and then through yes. the Congressional Black Caucus would be the two main ways in which and and, and mainly women. through the CBC. Yes, right. I mean the, those know, two, right? The black. Like, Political power in the South, in the primaries, um, and then also through the CBC. Well, look, you've been able to unify diffuse interests ranging from northern, very densely populated urban areas to fairly agrarian rural southern areas. Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Mississippi. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, those are not densely populated places. No. Um, uh, And and yeah, I I would say, so do you know what the motto of the CBC is? Mm Mm-mm. Uh, black people have no permanent friends, no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. Mm. It is the most forthrightly political wow. statement of purpose I've ever heard. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, it's unapologetic, and, and I respect the hell out of it. Yeah. However, in a world in which there are now multiple black Republicans in the House, and they're excluded, right? So, so the Congressional Black Caucus was built upon the following assumption. Statewide Black candidates will always struggle to hold office for sufficient tenure of time to gain the seniority necessary to meaningly, meaningfully affect change, right? So the House was where Black power was going to reside. And, which, is, which is proven true, I would say. Absolutely. Obama although it is, although, that, although that is changing, right? Yeah, I mean, in the Senate, that. That, that is changing in the Senate. I'd agree right? with we will, that, yeah. Regardless of what happens, Georgia's next senator for a six-year term will be, will be black, American, right? Yeah. It looks like it. I mean, I, I, I guess Herschel Walker could lose the primary, but that seems unlikely at this seems point. Seems unlikely, yeah. Um, you know, you now have what three or four Repu- black Republican members of the House. Yep. Um, obviously, Tim Scott Tim is Scott. a black Republican. Uh, is the first Kamala black. Harris. Uh, uh, Kamala. Well, she's now vice president, but yeah, she right. was elected. Cory Booker as well. Yeah. Um, sure. So you know, you are getting statewide. You know, John James ran unsuccessfully twice for the Senate from Michigan, but came close, came right? Close. Came within spitting distance sure. in, in some rough cycles. Um, yeah. And I think he's going to run for a House seat that he'll almost certainly win. So he'll be he'll be a member of the House. So you're now looking at this world in which, well, okay, you're now getting a handful, not still a handful, but a handful of Black Republicans in the House. Uh, you've got a Black Republican in the Senate who's the the premier fundraiser in the Senate, interestingly. Um, you know, Tim Scott has raised a, a huge amount of money. Um, people are speculating whether he's positioning himself to run for president, whether he wants to do something in the Senate in the future. Nobody really knows. But, um, you know, the and the reliable reelection in order to accrue seniority of urban black districts, as well as less so rural black districts, those those still can seem to be unlocked, although they're moving more Republican. Right. I mean, Georgia, too, is now on the it's on the list. It's on the list. Right. That's a front. 
that's a frontline district, and you have a black Republican running against a, a long time, a uh, long tenured uh, black Democrat. You're, you're entering a world in which the old model of the CBC is starting to break apart, both because the things that it thought of as its safe districts are no longer safe. They're losing some on the margins to Republicans. Uh, Butterfield got redistricted out of existence. In, yep. I was just going to mention him. Yeah. 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 And so, um, and that was not a rate, eh, that was a partisan gerrymander. Um, there's, there's some college towns they're working with there too. Um, but yeah, you have, you know, you have a, they're losing their marginal Southern rural seats to Republicans and they're losing their, uh, you know, their Northern ur urban seats to progressive white voters who may elect, you know, black or minority members, but they're progressives first and foremost. Right. Their base is with. Ide you know, it's ideological rather it's than ideological like, and they're more peripatetic and right. they're more interested in serving the sort of consumption good politics needs of their their affluent white voters than they are bringing home the bacon through the patient accrual of favors and seniority right right that, Sorry, that was like, a really long digression on the no that would be more like ariana presley than Lacey clay oh ayana yeah ayana ayana thank you yeah no well, that corey, was great. i mean cory bush is a good example right she yes. beat Lacey clay and yeah. You know, Cory Bush has, as a freshman member of Congress, staged a number of conspicuous political acts, right? You can decide how, how they sort of play out. You know, one of them, she said on national television, hell yes, we're going to defund the police. And I, I mean, I could hear the glasses of my fellow Republican political operatives <laughs> clinking, their, clinking their glasses as, together. As the state of Missouri yeah. um, and then further into the red. Yeah, exactly. And then, on, you know, she also did a, a she camped out. Um, on the uh, the eviction moratorium uh, on the steps of the Capitol, and she got Chuck Schumer to come down and hug her and, and AOC and talk about how great they were. And the Biden administration, you know, did a misbegotten and obviously unconstitutional extension of it, then got shot down. But you know, that was a that was a sign of real power. So yeah. you can read her how you want, um, but that's not Lacey Clay would never have done either. <laughs> no, right? no, he wouldn't have. Well, that's really interesting. I think this is probably a good place to leave it. I mean, we ended up on a pretty big digression, it, but I'm not sure that it really was though, because I think that when we're talking about the formal powers of the party, um, the party leadership, I think, I, I think that at least with respect to the Democratic side. And which is probably the most relevant at this point because it's the majority party, is is that the 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 way in which the party leadership behaves is going to be reflective of you know because you know they have to win two elections, um, and even if the one election is guaranteed, as as Luke has been pointing out here, you know we're talking about overwhelmingly Democratic districts, um, but where there is a lot within the changes within the Democratic coalition that are, are downstream, they're ideological in nature, but they're downstream of demographic changes and economic changes are really transforming the party. So, uh, you know, and this is why I wanted to ask you about this, Luke, because I think that it, on a textbook level, this is the sort of stuff, political scientists are only gonna be observing this, real, you know, being able to write about this in like 10, 15 years or something. You know, so. <laughs> well, I, I do think that like, the, the interesting thing is the game theorists the information theorists and the like, all, the game theorists actually have pretty good mechanisms to talk about this stuff, or at mm -hmm. least to, to be descriptively effective in it. It's just, you do kind of have to be deep in the weeds and you have to be pretty unsentimental about it. Yeah, and, you have to, yes, you have to be, uh, yes, you, you do. You have to be, uns you have to do what Fenno did as well. You know, you have to know 
these districts in a way that I think most political scientists probably don't know anymore. You know, it's, it's like, it's interesting to me. It's sort of like, you know, when you see like, so as I think regular listeners of mine know, you know, um, and you see, you know, I talk to people out here and then you see, cause it's an overwhelming Republican and frankly, pretty Trumpy area. Um, and, and then when you see people on television talking about what Trump voters think, it's like, well, you don't actually know any Trump voters. Like you're just you're just reading and interpreting a poll. There's only so much nuance that a poll can tell you that to really understand things, you have to look a lot closer. You know, you have to be like like Luke. Well, frankly, Luke is one of those political night fighters, right, Luke? <laughs> this is how I spend my day. Yeah, exactly. So we're recording this, this at ten fifteen in the evening, so people know right. that like that so, we you know we got to wedge it in. Yeah. So well, I think we'll leave things off here. Um, I just a, a shameless plug for you, if you don't mind. Um, oh, actually, Jay, can I can I say one thing sure, finally? Course, because we absolutely. we were talking about House leadership, and I know we've gone long, guys, and I apologize. But here's here's one important dynamic that we have not talked about, which is who chooses to look to seek House leadership. Um, there are sort of two forms of House leadership. There's committee leadership, and then there's leadership leadership. Um, typically, uh, every member of the House. Uh, looks down Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House and thinks someday, but I got to go somewhere else first, which means they're always thinking about running for the governor's mansion or for the Senate. Um, I know that there's this sort of truism popular among you know people who think that every every member of the House is, is thinking about being a lobbyist from day one. I can assure you that is not true, or given the wave elections that we've had, we'd have a whole lot more lobbyists running around. Um, many of them get to D.C., and they don't actually even love D.C., uh, but they think a lot about how they could have, you know, they, they get into politics. Many of them are either state legislators. So this is the first full-time political job they've had because they, they're often part-time state legislators, or maybe they've been a constitutional officer, like a secretary of state or something like that. But, um, you know, they are, they're thinking seriously, can I run statewide? Can I run for the Senate? Can I run for, um, for governor? And what you'll find as a result is, and, and oftentimes they do run and fail, right? I mean, like uh, Mike Braun, who's, the sen- who's a senator from Indiana right now, beat two members of the House, one of whom has since become, I think, attorney general, right? But like he ran as a self-funding business guy against two members of Congress. Well, those are two members that turn over in a state with, what does Indiana have, eight members of Congress, I want to say? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's a quarter of your, of your caucus turning over in one, in one turn, right? So people from states with realistic paths to statewide office, they tend to turn pretty quickly, which means that they don't always shoot their, their ambitions toward leadership. Now, I just mentioned Indiana. I'd be remiss to not to point out that Jim Banks of Indiana is currently the Republican Study Committee chair. So you know there are exceptions, but in full disclosure, I know Jim Banks a little. We're acquainted. I think he's a good guy. Um, but you know, a lot of politicians are looking around thinking, boy, I really don't like being a legislator because it's a lot of talking and not a lot of doing. I'd really like to run for governor. Or they're thinking there's 435 people and I have to do whatever my, my party leader tells me. I hate, you know, I hate being herded like, like cattle. I want to be a senator so that I can actually have a policy area, dig down, specialize, and you know, not be whipped constantly by, by the leadership. Um, so who winds up staying in political leadership? Well, if you look at who's, who the Republican leaders are, you have Kevin McCarthy from California. There are no Republican statewide office holders in California. It's a very hard road to hoe if you want to get there. It's a tall order, right? He's from a deep blue state. He's not really going to shoot. 
You have Steve Scalise from Louisiana, which is very crowded, right? There are a lot of Republicans, and he decided to go for House leadership rather than try to, you know, push his way through a crowded Republican political world that included, you know, it's hard to remember this at the time, but like David Vitter was a fairly prohibitive political figure before a variety of, yeah, of, of issues scandals. Yeah, the issues. Um, right. You all have access to the internet. You can look them yeah, up. Yeah, look up David um, Women of ill repute. Yes. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't hold them accountable for it. I, I would right. say the Senator is the Senator is the responsible. Yes. Um, so, you know, the, the, there, you will find people from states that run to the opposite party or people from states that are very much in their party and thus very crowded, especially larger states, right? So both of the, the, the Speaker of the House and the majority or the minority leader are both from California. Pelosi, because running statewide in California is just like murderer's row. It's extremely hard. It's ludicrously expensive. And uh, the people stick around for a long time. So it doesn't turn over very quickly. So she chose a career in the House. I mean, she was in the House for 20 years before she became lead, uh, leader of the Democrats in 2003, right? Pelosi's been in the House since before I was born. Yeah. Um, and I'm pushing middle age solidly now, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, there are uh, – so that those are the types of people who do it. So, you know, Kevin McCarthy from California, Scalise from Louisiana, which is crowded, Elise Stefanik from New York. Again, yeah, no perfect example. Right? She's no got nowhere to go. Where what's up for her? Nothing. Right? It's up for her is to be a leader in the house. Be a leader in the house. Um, and and so, you know, contending for house leadership is a risky proposition, right? You can lose. Uh, Eric Cantor beat uh, Roy Blunt, and Roy Blunt left the house and ran for the Senate. Yeah. Right. He was like, all right, you know, I put my time in the house. I tried to win a whips race. I lost it to Eric Cantor. Eric won, so he's on the trajectory. I'm off the trajectory. You know, it doesn't matter that I put six or eight years into this. Like, it's time to go to the Senate. Right. Um, and so you will, you will see people. There, there is a choice that legislators make early on, which is, do I see my career in the House or out of the House? Most of them see their career out of the House, either in the form of, I'll do this for a little while. And if I don't like it, I'll retire and go sit on some boards or I'll go back to work in business or whatever, right? You know. It's a prestige post to have been a member of Congress. You can usually convert that into some remunerative outcomes. Yeah, and social status as well. And social status Certainly. as well, right? Like, like you'll be called congressman for the rest of your life. You can put your pin in. You can go to the State of the Union. Like people will stand up when you walk into the room until the day you die. It's yep. it's weird, but like it's like being a judge in a town, right? Exactly. Everybody calls you. Nobody calls you by your first name, right? Yeah. Um, and then there are others who. Who you know say okay I'm I'm not gonna I'm I this is it I'm gonna compete in the House and so I'm gonna accrue power within the House with an eye to either becoming Speaker or Majority Leader or something like that and so often you know Steny Hoyer is another good example right Maryland deep blue state extremely crowded there wasn't really a path for Hoyer to jump over the the various and sundry um, you know Maryland politicos until he was too old right right um, Jim Clyburn. Another good example. The South embodiment. Where is right. he going? Where is he going? He's not winning statewide South Carolina, right? right? And and he's kind of the quintessential embodiment of the political logic of the old Congressional Black Caucus, right? right. Accrue power, accrue seniority, develop influence, and use that to advance the the interests of your, your of your community. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, thanks for that, Luke. Um, yeah, I, I really feel like you 
did the heavy lifting this time. I mean, <laughs> really, really good, good stuff. I appreciate it. So, well, I know this, this wasn't terribly constitutional, but there was a lot of speaking. So I, yeah, hope, I hope our listeners enjoyed it. <laughs> that's good. So, uh, and I feel somewhat guilty, not guilty enough to do it, having been uh, uh, not as participative in this. I'm still going to shamelessly plug my book, even though I didn't put my weight, full weight in. You should, always. Uh, so my new book is out, James Madison, America's First Politician. Uh, is has been on sale for a couple months. I know many of you have purchased it. I, I know this for a fact. And those of you who have, I thank you. Uh, if you have occasion to leave me a five-star review on Amazon, I would be normative, enormously appreciative. That actually kind of matters in the long run um, for me. You know, so it's just good to, good to see, you know, because, you, you know, and the thing too, if you're a writer, you, you'll know this, like you're always going to get like, I have a troll on Amazon who gives me who's been giving me one Starbucks for a decade, which is super creepy because the guy I assume is a guy, but he lives in Cranberry, which is real near me. So it's like, oh, do I know him from high school? But yeah, <laughs> it's super creepy. Um, anyway, I I doubt he's a listener, and I, I'm sure he's never read my books. But whenever he sees a book, he gives a one star review. And whenever you don't have that many reviews, you know, Ron Chernow can if you his high school. Uh, enemies control him all he wants because he's got you know five thousand reviews for Hamilton, but I think I have like forty reviews right now for my book. So you know those five star reviews really, if you know you don't have to write a review, just leave me five stars. Actually makes a big deal and a really enormously appreciative and just again a thank you uh, to this audience for supporting me, supporting my work. I really appreciate it. Um, and a reminder that if you are interested, I have. We have some sort of goodies. Luke and I are still planning to finish our recording of a bonus podcast on the Democratic Party. Um, and if you're interested in those, to get on the waiting list for those, hopefully you won't have to wait too much longer. Um, but just send me an email, the letter J, C-O-S-T, 241 at gmail.com. I'll put you on the waiting list if you send me proof of purchase. And also, if you would like a book plate, a signed book plate, which is just sort of a nice fancy sticker I had made special. Um, if you'd like one of those to add to your book, or if you're thinking about the book as a gift, um, just email me, um, jcost241 at gmail.com with proof of purchase. Um, let me know what your address is, and I'll drop one in the mail for you. It's, the idea is, is that I sign the plate, um, and then you can affix it to, to the book where, the, where a signature would go. So just two little nice things um, just to incentivize if you're on the margins about purchasing the book. Um, you know, it's all about the marginal purchase, but also I think more importantly as a, as a thank you to this audience as well uh, for all your support over the years. So, and uh, so we'll leave things off here. Um, and I think our next big subject that we're going to talk about, I think it'll be an interesting one, especially when we get to the Senate, but we're going to be talking about legislative procedure, right? So if you remember that old schoolhouse rock, how bill becomes a law, we're going to kind of do that. And if you're worried about me singing, you don't have to worry. I won't sing the song for you. <laughs> But we're going to kind of go over the details. So we'll look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Thanks for listening.